So welcome, everyone, to the ongoing, uh, the ongoing elucidation of the Satipatthana Sutta. On and on it goes. We'll go probably through most of next year. <laughs> and then I may start all over. <laughs> it seems to cover every theme that is relevant to Dharma practice, so I'm in no rush to move on to some other topic because that topic would essentially double back on this topic. So it's with that we just move very incrementally through the sutta. But I do want to just spend a, a minute or two uh, talking about uh, a couple of things. One is uh, the comment I made prior to the beginning of the talk about the passivity of the audience. I really do ask and request that people engage in what is being said. So I ask you not to lie down, but sit up and really uh, hold a, an alert attention and see if the words don't invite a particular experiential level within each of us so that we can follow experiencing our own life through the words and thereby create the very wisdom from those words that are very much a part of uh, the point of giving Dharma talks. <clears throat> they're not just to educate us, they're not just uh, like um, a class in school where we say, oh, that was a good, good class, but then we're left with an intellectual residue. Nothing has really gotten into our soul, into our spirit, into the cells of our being. This drops and is intended to drop to a different level of ourselves. And so listening requires a different uh, way of perceiving and hearing the formulation of what is being said so that it can become immediately relevant and engaged within us. <clears throat> and that's the difference really between passive listening and Dharma listening. Now, uh, <clears throat> I'd also like to uh, just start off with a passage from a book called Passages by Gail Shi, And uh, I think it's very relevant to, in general, Dharma growth. And I think I can set this paragraph up so that it moves into the topic at hand this evening. And it reads, um, with each spiritual transformation, some dream must be given up, some cherished, cherished illusion of safety and comfortable familiarity. Let me start over if I could. With each, I'll use it with my glasses. This time. <laughs> <laughs> with each spiritual transformation, some dream must be given up. Some cherished illusion of safety and comfortably familiar sense of self must be cast off to allow for the greater expansion of our own understanding. Such times of crisis may force us to resolve a developmental task more effectively because we see, we see to move forward, we must, we must surmount the difficulty in front of us. So uh, I just want to just spend a few words. I, when I read that, I thought, oh, you know, that's really the way that spiritual growth occurs. It doesn't occur so much linearly as uh, is sort of a uh, incremental drop into a new level of expansionness. And from that expansion, uh, you have a wider sense of space, a less, a looser sense of self. Uh, and it's not as a contracted or struggled uh, feel of life. And each spiritual insider 
each spiritual incremental growth does take us to a point of tension within ourselves often because that tension is the fear that has held that particular contracted place in us uh, in, in place. And as we allow our, that to be exposed, uh, we come to the developmental tasks that we have to do around that particular uh, contraction that allows us to go forward. It's a developmental task. It's a way, it's a new maturity. It's a new way of looking at life. It's a new sense of, of, of boundarylessness, a new way that we have walked out of a particular boundary that we've created in ourselves and now have an open field and a play. And so these developmental tasks must be taken very seriously. They're not uh, just uh, fantasy trips. They really are challenges that translate in terms of changes in behavior in ourselves. And some of the ways that they can take us to our, into our, um, a more uh, expansive way of looking at intimacy, for instance, or a re-perception um, of the sense of who we are uh, now that we have understood perhaps how we've held ourselves in such a disadvantaged light for so many years. We challenge the old feelings of being abandoned or alone or inadequate or whatever it might be. And there is a new way of, of allowing the sense of self to grow beyond those limitations. And what often happens, I'm finding, is that we are very welcoming to the spiritual insights, but the implication of where those insights will take our lives are often uh, we reserve some caution with. We, we aren't sure we want to go into that kind of open field living. And we pull back in timidity, uh, we're never letting ourselves actually embrace the change that's necessary for us to move into the next arena of our growth. If we stay within the insight but not allow our body to change in accordance with that insight, not allow our actions to be integrated with that insight, what we will find is that the contraction within us will remain and we will not be able to expand outward, which is where the insight is ultimately taking us because we will, our, our, our emotions will be in a knot around that particular uh, psychological dysfunction. And so these developmental tasks will occur all along the way. You will see yourself in new light. Why go back to the old way of seeing yourself and pretend that, well, that was a nice story, but it has really nothing to do about with me. You see, this is not an education. This is a transformation. This is a way of coming, allowing ourselves to expand ever greater into more access, into more openness. And uh, these developmental tasks are ones that each one of us will feel, as I mentioned, and are challenged to uh, orient our life in a new way and a new meaning. And it requires exposing ourselves to the pain of how we've held ourselves in the past, which is often one of the remarkable uh, where we hesitate most remarkably, uh, is in actually 
having a perception of ourselves as being more expansive, then when we come back into that contracted place, being unwilling to feel the pain of what's holding us within that, within that kind of squeeze of ourselves. Why aren't we willing to look at the pain? We already know that we're more than the pain. We've seen that insightfully. But somehow the pain holds an assumption about ourselves untested. We come back into that uh, contracted mode in conflict with ourselves and never, never move forward. Well, spirituality is literally moving forward, literally taking these tasks at hand and continually moving outward. <clears throat> and so even when we're talking about something as simple, not simplistic, but simple as feelings, there will be developmental tasks associated with these feelings, I guarantee you. If you understand where this message is moving, where it penetrates, where it ultimately, the lancer, the lance of it is moving, it will, uh, it will uh, open uh, us up uh, if we take it with a serious intention. So we're beginning to look at how and what a life that's lived through feelings is, looks like. And I'm not in any way trying to suggest that some of the more uh, difficult and often emotionally troubling difficulties we have in our life can be just simply uh, summarized as a feeling. <clears throat> I don't want to say it too because it feels like it's a dismissal of some of the more difficult and tragic ways our lives turn. But ultimately, that's the truth. Right? I mean, we make a, we expound enormously on what this, what this situation before us means to us and how traumatic it is and the difficulties and the challenges in front of us and the psychological attitudes that I'm fixed within and the background uh, burden of my past and all of that. We make it a three-dimensional and somewhat burdensome uh, composite, but it started with a feeling. I know I was once um, watching a beaver create a dam in Massachusetts. I was on a three-month course, so I had a lot of time to watch the beaver <laughs> do his work. And uh, he was block blocking a rather uh, swift-moving stream. But he did it one stick at a time. And the first stick was the most important. The first limb would fall, and he put it right up there. And it didn't look like it was going to stay very long, but he very quickly followed it with several other limbs. And before I knew it, in the course of just a few days, he had a sizable blockage of that stream. And it was backing up, dammed. But it started with a single uh, stick. And that's analogous, I think, to the feeling tone, the single stick of feeling tone. And very quickly, that feeling tone, because of how we engage with it or turn from it, which is really the point at hand for this talk, other sticks start coming up and blocking one stick after another, forming a dam that ultimately leads to a sense of separation and isolation 
from the body of water. Uh, and so that sense of, of feeling tone gets very quickly stuck within the mind. Once we have moved in relationship to a feeling tone, then we are essentially engaged within our minds. Once we are, and we love that because that's a familiar territory. And, and then the sticks come very quickly because oftentimes remembering that feelings are conditions, conditional, that means they have a backlog of, of, of past of memories associated with feelings. So you have a feeling about something and you not only have a perception and a recognition of what it's about, but you also have your past memories associated with that condition and with that feeling. So very quickly, the logs start piling up. And then over time, there's an attitudinal shift in relationship to that particular obstruction. And there can be a dysfunctionality, uh, a developmental dysfunctionality, and a task that needs to be attuned. But we'll won't challenge the task because we won't take apart this dam piece by piece and see that it's just thought, it's just an emotion, it's just an attitude, it's experience from the past, it's piling up, it's made into much more than it ever was, and we weren't willing to bring it back to the simplicity of its simple, the simple simpleness of it, what it really is. That's what meditation is an attempt to do, is to relook at the dams that we have created in our life, the boundaries that we have imposed upon our life, stick by stick, and to see whether each stick can be simply removed, that it isn't the exaggerated importance that my mind has given it, that it is a very simple thing, that it's an emotion, that it's an attitude, that it's a feeling, that it's a thought, that it's a belief. And from those sticks, they can very simply be taken apart. But trying to move the whole pile all at one time, that often arrests our movement forward. So as we move into these foundations, I uh, am getting a renewed appreciation for them. Uh, and I also have a different way of looking at them as we begin to uh, invest our time and energy week after week in deciphering what they are. And I'd just like to talk a moment about uh, these foundations, especially the first two, which is where we have gone, but then how the other two begin to move us out into a different arena. And the first foundation, of course, was the foundation of the body. And the point of that foundation and of all these foundations is to disassemble that, those stockpile of dams, of boundaries that we have imposed, thereby understanding what the nature of self is. Each foundation has that as its intended purpose. So the invitation to use the body as a foundation for mindfulness is an attempt to see the body free of ownership of I, me, or mine to see what it actually is outside of our conceptual realization and perception of what it is. So 
When we start looking at the experiential nature of the body, we see vast space where we thought there was condensed muscle and bone and etc. We actually find that the body contains a lot of space. And also it can't be summarized or molded or defined by the images that we associate with the body. In fact, when we enter the body image-free, the body is as expansive and is infinite in its expanse as the universe itself. And so we begin to uh, find the impersonal quality of the body, and yet when we open our eyes, there's the body, we come back into form, and not to deny the uh, accountability that we have for this form as we limited as we see it in a limited fashion. So both the expansiveness, the infinite and the finite are equally as relevant to us in the course of this, but we don't just focus in on the finite and believe that that's the sum total of the experience at hand, that there's another side to this equation of body. And so the body sets us up for that sense of exploration and wonder, and then we move from the body, which gives us a beautiful platform and stability to look into the next uh, foundation, which is the feelings, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or undifferentiated feeling, so that when those arise, we can begin to see the log jam of self begin to back, hold the waters back in terms of our past, because that's what it does, it dams us up so that the past can't move through the present. It dams the past up so that the water it holds is, is a convincing body of who I am from my past. And just from a simple feeling tone, and as we begin to look at what a feeling tone is and to begin to see how the mind self, self itself around that feeling tone, we begin to get a sense of how this thing is put together from the body on up. And then moving into the next foundation of mindfulness, which we will take apart in the course of the early part of next year, mind states begin to form around those feelings. Stories are told, narrative, a whole sense of rationalization and justification and philosophy and posture all comes in with an emotional storehouse around the body, around the feelings, around each of the emotional embodiment, thereby having a particular uh, orientation to itself. So it just starts feeding on itself like some out of controlled organism that just expands forever on its own fantasy. But then the fourth foundation, and I just want to show you where we're ultimately going in this, is the fourth foundation begins to break apart everything because it's the spirit and art of questioning and looking. And it's a foundation because it could actually be perceived as the uh, way to break apart the fabrication of the first three foundations and to, to begin to journey into the question of wonder, to break apart the spaces of these things. So, to bring the selflessness within the first three foundations and to question forever uh, this uh, sense of, of consolidation and contraction that we call ourselves. 
So I, I, I think sometimes it's helpful to get a feeling for where these uh, four foundations are taking us and uh, begin to um, uh, establish a, a kind of practice that allows us to start questioning early on the sense of body, the sense of feelings, the sense of mind as it all comes in, these packaging qualities of self. All establishing what? A mentally derived sense of me. Mentally derived. Not actually present. Not actually truthful. Can't point to something. As I think I've mentioned in here before, I was listening to Radio Lab, one of the uh, uh, NPR <coughs> programs, and the program was uh, Who Am I? And the uh, program of Who Am I uh, interviewed a number of scientists, psychologists, and neuroscientists, etc., that had a sense of of uh, of the answer to that question, Who Am I? None of the scientists could come up with a definition. I thought the neurologist did it the best. He said, well, each neuron can carry, can, carries a message or an image of your past about who you are. And so you have a, a, a billion neurons firing. And so it's better to say that there are a billion of you as to say that there is one of you. I said, okay, I can... I, I can then somehow with these billion lights going on, it forms a mosaic, doesn't it? With these billion flashes, right? All recognizable and completely imprintable and, and the terrain is knowable. And all from what? Spontaneous firings of neurons. And so ever the logic of self comes from that mosaic of those neurons firing. So we have to break apart that solidification that we believe ourselves to be and to come back into more of the neurological patterning that we really are. <clears throat> and to do that, we have to look at feeling tones. And we've looked at the pleasant feeling tone. So tonight, we're going to focus in on the unpleasant feeling tone. Now, if pleasant feeling tone, if the pleasant feeling tone really um, accentuated life, a certifiably acclaimed life made it worth living, then the unpleasant feeling tone <laughs> is representative of life as a failure. Is it not? And we therefore try to avoid the implications of a failed life by avoiding an unpleasant feeling. Now, we get so mixed up as to what it means in terms of what an unpleasant feeling tone is that we think we're unpleasant. That's one way we associate with unpleasant feeling tones. Or we think that we're failed. That's another association. But we don't just see that that's how our conditioned reference is to look at unpleasantness as a, as a, um, as a condemnation of life itself. Life shouldn't be this way. Who, it's a, I don't know who set this about, but just get rid of that part of life and everything would be just perfect, wouldn't it? And so we just, we think just by, we just negate that part of life and we really have that logic in us. See, it's not a conscious logic, it's an unconscious logic. 
it's, it's a pattern by which we have always learned to operate. And this pattern operates very quickly. As an example, uh, I was going over last week, I think, to Bainbridge to do a day long. So I parked our car down on the deck, and I wanted to go walk around on the outside of the ferry. Had this whole idea of how I'd spend my half hour doing so. And as I was opening the door to go up the staircase, there is a very slow, heavy woman in front of me. And I couldn't get around her. And she was going one step at a time. And there are many landings. So I thought, well, maybe I should just excuse myself. No, that would be too brash. Well, it's just going to. This is just going to be my life, hon. And in fact, it'll probably be 30 minutes before I even get up to the deck itself. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, come on, yeah, this is unpleasant, right? What are you teaching? <laughs> is there any less life in this moment than a life on the bridge? Is some is my life somehow being compromised? Not my life. Is life somehow being compromised? and moving up the stairs rather than being on the bridge? Is it being diminished somehow? And I thought, whoa. You start looking at what the assumptions are associated with unpleasantness, and the automatic response, it is being diminished. It'd be much more pleasant if I were up there. But life itself, life itself, its full impact, its full aliveness is never diminished, regardless of the feeling tone. We've just learned to associate the sense of diminishment with the quality of the experience. But here is a call to expand outward. Now, I strongly suggest that we apply to our life this simple, simple message, profound, because it will take us to developmental tasks in ourselves. Said simply, but you can see how easy I skipped out. I caught myself quickly, but the moment I was weighing in, there was this conflict that felt strange to me because I was in conflict over the value of my life going up the steps. That's, that's, that's the actual statement inside of myself I was feeling. My life isn't worth living going up the steps. See how easily we discard it, negate that part, wanting to get over it? rather than basing ourselves at the base camp of where life really is, which has nothing at all to do with the feeling tones. Nothing at all. And the addiction to the good feeling tones meets the reality uh, again and again and again. So what happened? I was fantasizing. I wasn't there. I wasn't on the deck. It was just the optimum environment where I thought pleasure could 
could be entertained. So it was a fantasy world. And she interrupted my fantasy world. While I was fantasizing, I was not alive. It wasn't as if my real aliveness existed on that bow of the boat. My real existence existed behind the woman who was going slow. But I discarded that existence for the fantasy of a, of a, of a moment believed, of a pleasant moment believed. Well, let's take ourselves to task on that one. Because it happens to us again and again and again. And when you ask the question, what is wrong with this moment? And there are many times in the course of the day, we will inwardly complain about this moment. Your answer will always be the same. It is unpleasant. Period. And that's what's wrong with it. And that is the only thing that's wrong with it. And even though we have lived now in the Dharma, in the first Dharma discourse that we hear is how the contraction and avoidance and turning away from the unpleasant and the grasping of the pleasant creates the very division and separation of life that creates the shadow and looms with the horror of the shadow. And we hear that and we think, oh, that's beautiful. I think that's so true. And then why doesn't this woman move faster up these steps? <laughs> so I'm sitting at the Forest Refuge. The Forest Refuge is a bastion of experienced meditators who you have to, to get in there. You have to have done a lot of meditation. So I'm teaching at the Forest Refuge. One of the women there has lung cancer and she coughs a lot. So we're sitting there, uh, about 30 of us, and the woman starts coughing. And everybody, I could feel everybody starting to move, you know, it's like, why is this woman disrupting my sitting? And she f feels that energy, I'm sure, and she gets up and she starts to leave. And I go right on after her and I say, please come back. I don't want you to go. I want, you can certainly go if you feel uh, your health requires you going. But don't go because people are moving in relationship to your coughing. You're serving to bring a point of Dharma home to us that desperately needs it in this facility. And that is that it's not about just bathing ourselves in stillness and not having any conflict or any noise or any disturbance within that stillness. It's not wiping the table clean so that somehow what? So that what? So there won't be any tension, there won't be any unpleasantness, there won't be any difficulty. Difficulty, the rub, that's where we go. That's where we're drawn to. That's where we can ferret out what and how this sense of self is being formed within that difficulty. Last week, I called the talk the pain of pleasure. The pain that's inherent in having us seek pleasure. And where what drives us seeking pleasure is often 
a sense of pain within ourselves. But it's as easy to talk about avoidance and turning away as the pleasure of pain. Because we get something out of turning away. Even though we know it's going to create pain, we still turn away. We still want to turn away. It gives us a, it's a position statement for us. When we turn away from something, we feel ennobled in ourselves. It's a, the eye is now intact and life is meaningful because I've turned away from something, from some sense of rub or conflict. And I'm often arrogantly, we think we're more noble than even having to deal with this argument. And there are many occasions, like what I was talking about, I think, last week in terms of anger, where uh, anger, uh, even though it burns to be angry, it's terribly painful. If you ever look at the sense of anger in oneself, and anger includes all of the nuances of impatience and frustration and annoyance and irritation and on and on. So what is it that keeps us angry? keeps us with our hands in the fire of the anger, but the pleasure we get out of the anger, which is the pleasure of our pomp, of our position, of the certainty of our righteousness, of the sense of being powerful, when deep inside we feel the history of our inadequacy. And for this moment, this one moment, Camelot moment, I can feel the power of my own validity by being angry. And so we choose to be angry, even though it's painful. We choose to avoid the unpleasant and not turn towards the anger, but turn away from the anger, thereby having the anger own us and control us. Or let's take fear. Fear, how do we, what's the, what does fear give us? It's such a devastating emotion. Well, it gives us a sense of protection. We can keep ourselves unexposed. We feel we have false choices. We feel we have choices in fear. Fear gives us some hesitation of rushing in or being spontaneous, of being natural. It pulls us back in reflection. It says there's risk here. Do I really want this? Do I, what does it mean to be waking up? Do I really want to wake up? Doesn't sound all that good the way he's talking about it. <laughs> See, we keep ourselves unenlightened. It's useful to ask, what, how am I keeping myself unenlightened in this moment? How am I maintaining my unenlightened state? Through the pleasure of avoidance. I hedge my bets. And now maybe, well, since I don't want to rush into this thing, maybe I'll just kind of pull back a little bit on my meditation. And uh, just, you know, I'll sort of, I look good. When other people are looking at me, I sit well. Maybe that'll be enough. Maybe then I'll just kind of follow the pleasure stream of my internal life and never challenge myself out of that stream. Because meditation is, you can do with it what you want. 
it's not going to control you, you're going to control it. And you can move it according to the strategies of your, your egoic strategies very easily. And if your egoic strategies are to avoid pain and to pursue pleasure, believe me, your inward world looks very much like a replication of that. And so you just, you get a sense of what we do to maintain these strategies, this agenda of ours. Why and how and what is that all about? It's because we don't want to feel unpleasant. Now, how bad is that? And so we think, well, what I'll do, Abe Lincoln said there is, uh, where there is suffering or turning away, there is also holy ground. So what does that mean? <clears throat> Well, let's look at that for a second. We have an unpleasantness, and then that unpleasantness sends us up into the mind, away from our experiential body. Our experience doesn't have any control over the unpleasant. We are at the mercy of the unpleasant when we are not in our minds. So to embody the unpleasant seems like we are enduring hardship, needless hardship. So from that conclusion, we go up into the mind, where we can now revolt against the unpleasant. And from that revolution, where I don't have to, I don't have to tolerate this. You see, you see your mother or your father pointing their finger at you, and the unpleasant memories come back. And so I don't have to do. I'm stronger. I can do. I can take action with this. So up into action we go. Well, what does it mean to take action against the unpleasant? It means to think our way out of it. That's the definition of taking action. There's only one thing you can do to keep yourself from feeling the unpleasant is to think of pleasant memories or some place you could go or some strategy that solves the experience at hand. And so that unpleasantness then turns very quickly into a whole posture or representation often full of self-assumptions and self-belittlement and how I've been held to be responsible and how I've never had the power and all of this. We're just challenged emotionally, psychologically, in every way. And out comes this reactivity. And from that reactivity creates a narrative of extraordinary volume, extraordinary impact, extraordinary detail. It makes us feel as if we're three-dimensional. Like we're here, we have a future up ahead that can be pleasant if we can just get out of this. And we have a past that we're trying to escape from and show that we're now a powerful person, that we're no longer in the sway of somebody else's authority. You can just feel that weight of self coming in. And full of emotions, and emotions set off new feeling tones. And now there's a cascading representation of feelings and aversion to feelings and new thoughts that create a new system of self-assumptions and a 
tweaking of those new thoughts so that they'll escape these now unpleasant emotions, and on and on it goes. It's a pretty thick dam, isn't it? <laughs> that beaver's been hard at work. And we have created a field of separation. A field of separation now. The logic of which, bring on Einstein, we can beat him to the conclusion that this is justifiably the position that we need to take. Separation and isolation is the only way to go. <laughs> like a politician. <laughs> he said, <laughs> she said, and we have severed off any sense of connection. Because where does connection lie? It doesn't lie in the thought. It doesn't lie in the belief and the reactivity to the feeling. It doesn't, it doesn't lie in the uh, entombment of the narrative. It lies in the fact. It lies with the fact. Long since forgotten, I don't even remember what I was running from. But it lies with the fact. Facing the fact. Staying connected. Not allowing feeling tones to deflect us away whatsoever. To know a feeling as a feeling. To be able to accommodate a feeling as a feeling. Is this bearable? Only the story makes it unbearable. The feeling is never unbearable. It's just a feeling. It's the story we tell ourselves about the feeling that creates the unbearableness of it. And when we see that we're inciting a riot and that we really have motivation towards peace and quiet, we drop the story. And our spiritual intention is never to appease or avoid. It's only to understand. If you think about it, understanding unites and connects because we're understanding. We're connecting with something. To understand something, we have to connect with it. We have to be present And so then there's a relationship in understanding. We haven't formed an opinion or we, wouldn't, we would have already understood. We will have already concluded that there is a verb. Understanding is a verb. It's a fluidity. It's a movement. And what we begin to see is that as soon as we fixate, as soon as we have declared war on a feeling tone, we have essentially, our narrative has said, this is not acceptable. And at that point, it's saying life is not acceptable. Let's be very clear what we are saying. We then turn away from life entirely and talk about isolation. We have given up everything for the sake of a feeling. As if we could escape that feeling. Well, all we can do is create an image of a time in which that feeling wasn't present. That image does have a feeling tone, but it's not a truthful one. 
It's a fantasy. The bridge on the ferry had a feeling tone associated with that image. I want to go there. But it wasn't the truth. The truth was I was behind someone who was moving up the stairs very slowly and that wasn't as pleasant. But the mind, because it's so filled with alternatives to reality, very quickly deciphers which way it's going to go and heads towards the one in which it thinks it will have most success and, and ease and happiness. Turning away from anything is a betrayal of being because we have lost our accountability and we have severed our only, the only lifeline we have, which is connecting. The only lifeline that a human being has is the thin connection between our hearts with reality. And to turn away from that is perhaps the most destructive thing that we can do. And in doing so, we not only isolate ourselves, but we create the shadow of that turning in which life has more and more hold and grasp and torture upon us. Because as we, our choices narrow, we become feeling more blocked, more panicked by the choices that remain. And we have narrowed ourselves back into the corner, isolated, lonely. So I leave you with this question. What is a meaningful life? What is a meaningful life? And I challenge you to find what a meaningful life is, not to assume that the way we are conditioned has led us to a meaningful life. But to question that and to move ourselves deeply into a realization of the answer. Okay, thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? So how free is your consciousness as you sit? See, is it guarded? Is it protecting a particular feeling tone that is guarded? You want to maintain? You want it to persevere? Is it unwilling to go towards an unpleasant, perhaps that would expose a particular difficulty about yourself or troubling memory. Is it isolating and separating itself out 
from any disturbance whatsoever, trying to create the silence and calm and tranquility that you think this meditation promised. Or is it absolutely available to experience, regardless of the nature of that experience? So if there are any questions or comments this evening. Yes, sir. I was struck when you were talking about the fantasy. Yes. Part, um, how, how both the like, pleasantness of wanting that fantasy. Yes. I mean, that the company at the same time with the unpleasantness of losing that. Yes. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. The question is about fantasies and the pleasure of, of the uh, arousing of those fantasies and the uh, unpleasantness of the fantasy itself because it's not real. It's a very interesting, you know, when I, when I was a monk, I was completely celibate. So it doesn't keep my mind from working, you know, and so, but I, there was absolutely no action taken as a monk. You just are completely celibate. And so it, you, your mind starts spinning off in a sexual way. And, you know, it's like you were, you weren't a monk, you're a lay person, you could do anything up there, and nobody was looking. <laughs> and you could, you could be the lay person of the mind. And, uh, and yet, there was this, this enormous uh, pain associated with the unfulfillment of the fantasies. Even though the fantasies themselves held a pleasant tone, ultimately, the truth was that they weren't real. And that even though the pleasure, there was pleasure within the image, the image dropped into reality as an unpleasant experience because there was no fulfillment. And so I learned a lot about the nature of fantasy and how it drives us and how we get caught up in, in the depiction of events, but we don't often see the tragedy of the fall where the fantasy ends in an abrupt catastrophe because reality doesn't uh, move in that direction. And I would suggest, because it won't, the fantasy, the pleasure of the fantasy will pale by comparison to the difficulty of the unpleasant reality. And you just, you just, you just when, you see, when you see that it's, it's your pain, um, if you start thinking that way, it's just going to it's just going to be crazy and be painful. Then the mind just it doesn't. It's not a. See, this is the quality of understanding that I really want people to under, to get a sense of. Understanding is not a position. It's not an an opinion is a position. Understanding is understanding. It's not a position. It's when something is understood. There's complete access of it to you and you to it. 
the relationship is total. And so when there is understanding, there is also release. When there is opinion, then there is performance. Do you see the difference? And so mindfulness, awareness, dharma practice is all about understanding. It's not about opinionation. But opinionation holds the cue to pleasantness. You can be opinionated. Dharma is great. It's very pleasant to know that you know more and you have a deeper and richer understanding of life than most people out there. And it's also very arrogant, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> Let me tell you, dear, things change. I mean, we can always come back dharmically, right? There's a lot of pleasure in dharma. There's a lot of pleasure dharma gives you. But I'm wondering if that's where dharma is really meant to take us. Challenging you, right? Yes, sir, in the back. Newness? Are you saying newness? Are you saying newness? Everything is new. Where is, you show me something that's stagnant, and I'll show you where you've mentalized it. That's a word. It doesn't matter whether it's a word. You know what it meant, don't you? It doesn't matter. Make your own words up. You see, everything is new. You have to prove that to yourself. You say, oh, he's crazy. Am I? When things aren't, what, what is ever repeated? Well, there's memory that this is very close to what it was like two weeks ago. So maybe it's the same. I bear to differ. Different topic, different people, different arrangement, different light, everything's different. What the mind does, though, is it puts the similarity, it leads with the similarity, not with the newness. Because from the similarity, now I know what's going on here. I can relax, everything's secure. All right, I got, how much more time do I have to go before I can leave this madness? I got it all down, right? The newness doesn't allow that. Newness is like, whoa, everything is unfixed. And so the mind chooses to move with what it knows rather than what it doesn't. And yet, simultaneously, both of those are available. Simultaneously, in this moment, at this perception, in this perception that you're having right this moment, both of those are available. Which one are you choosing? There he goes again. Hmm? Now just follow with me here, because we're on to something. See, you feel, just drop it. There you go. Just drop to the newness. There you go. You see how energetically we can come there? Well, what do I know in this moment? Not very much. It's pretty quiet in there. 
See how close it is? Now, from that newness, pleasure and unpleasure doesn't, doesn't, there's no, this is fullness. Life isn't divided between pleasure and unpleasure. Unpleasant. Not in the quality of stillness. Because the quality of stillness, you realize there's no elaboration on pleasant or unpleasant. It was the elaboration, and even making the pleasant itself pleasant was an elaborative response. But in a quiet, there's just this. You can't even distinguish it. Now that makes life very interesting and very new. Should we leave it there for this evening? Thank you. Now, when I was speaking about coming here and using the talk for your realization, I ask you if this is, if you're unable to do that, you need some preparation in coming. You need to learn how to meditate, how to use the mind to see what it is that you're trying to look, to question, to see. And that is the art of insight meditation. The homework is the most important thing I offer in this course, because it's through the homework that that integration can be an ongoing work of art for your week's work. If you take it and just kind of stick it in your pocket, well, okay, enough for this evening. Uh, announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.